I know on, really on behalf of all the, the pastors, thank you for this season provides opportunities for m- many expressions of thoughtfulness on your behalf and cards and gifts and gestures uh, in the midst of all of the busyness of this season that any of you would take time to express that to us. We are very grateful, very thankful for being able to be a part of your lives and to care for your souls, it's a privilege to us. And the end of the year allows us a unique opportunity to reflect on that and be grateful for all the friends that we have had a chance to make through many years of serving together. So thank you guys for that. Uh, my wife were here. She would want me to uh, extremely express her gratitude just for the serving, the care, the communication we received in the last couple of days as our uh, son Seth, our 8-year-old, was hospitalized the last couple of days Um, So many of you texted, called, emailed, uh, supported, offered help, and uh, just thank you. You you feel like the spiritual national guard. That's what you feel like to to us. And and you know what? I I know that's been the experience for so many who have gone through trying seasons. People who have normal jobs, normal families, normal lives, all of a sudden just put on camouflage and come out of nowhere and they're praying and they're involved and they're active and, you know, and then the, the season subsides and they go back to their normal jobs and normal activities. You're like spiritual national guard. So thank you guys for showing up for us in the last few days. Uh, Seth came home last night. Um, he, uh, he had some unusual, still not quite sure what it is. They think it's something called ITP. Uh, I'm not going to go into the medical elements of it, but he, uh, his blood platelet count just suddenly went to very, very low. I think it's supposed to be 150,000. His was down to 11,000, and he was developing bruising spots all over the place, and uh, he, he looked rather interesting, but <clears throat> he felt fine, and if it weren't for the fact that he thought his double-jointed elbow was really cool and showed it to his sister, we'd, I don't think we'd have noticed it for another couple of days. He just didn't look bad at all, except for black and blue marks all over his body developing rapidly, so... Uh, his platelet levels came back up to about 56,000 last night, so they let him go home, but told him, please don't do anything to injure yourself, little boy, because <laughs> uh, you have some real bleeding problems right now, but he is, uh, he's definitely doing much better. Grateful for your prayers and your concerns. Well, Happy New Year. If I didn't get a chance to greet you and tell you that personally, um, you know, New Year's, they're just unique dates on the calendar, isn't it? I mean, it's just something about starting a new year, a new transition moment for us where whatever's been happening, we can kind of regroup, revisit some things. It does generate some unusual behavior. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm at Home Depot, uh, I guess it was uh, a couple days ago, I'm buying shelving for the garage, you know, shelving. For the garage. Who even notices that you have a garage most of the time unless you're just throwing stuff in it? But then the beginning of the year, it's like, I'm going to organize my junk. I'm just, you just get inspired to do weird stuff beginning of the year. So it is a transition point, and I think it's a good one to take advantage of, quite honestly. I know, the, you know lots of people do that. They're going to reexamine their weight. They're going to do something different in some pattern of their life. You know, quite honestly... I feel like the, the life that we live sort of feels like tumbling downhill, doesn't it? It's just one thing after its event, its activity, and you just, 
how do you organize tumbling downhill? I mean, people who are kind of bouncing down the hill and careening down, they don't stop along the way, pull a pencil out, and examine priorities, right? They just tumble. They just keep tumbling. But at some point, you and I do need to stop and examine and think about where we are. That needs to happen more often than just the January moment of the beginning of the year. But at least we have that opportunity to do that. But if things are going to be different, let me just sow a thought into our heads here. Uh, If our actions in our lives are going to change, they never change without an attitude change. They just, they don't. I mean, sometimes we just, we love the idea of change. We'd love for things to be different. But we sort of think different happens on its own somehow. and, And it doesn't. It happens when we get a different attitude about things. And that attitude begins to sort of churn something that pushes its way into our lives. And then suddenly we start doing some different things. And our lives become different. But, you know, here's what's going to frame my desire for a different attitude this year. I I no longer want what has become normal for me. I no longer want what has become normal. I I want a new normal. That's going to be a phrase you're going to hear a lot of this year. I know you've been hearing it already. I want a new normal. I I want to fight the familiar, right, the things that have just become the way they are. It's just the way that is in my life. That relationship is just the way it is. My relationship with the church, my spiritual dynamics in life, what I'm believing for God to do, it's just just the way it is. It's just kind of how it's been. Well, I want a new normal. I don't want what's become normal to just be checked off as acceptable in my life. Let me, let me give you a couple of inspiring examples. It won't take much time in either one of these. But, you know, turn to Genesis chapter 15. All right, here might be a new normal for some of you guys. I won't ask you to do this. But how many of you bring a Bible to church? I know that's a novel idea, you know, to bring a Bible to church? Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know sometimes it's a scramble on a Sunday morning to find your Bible, which says something about the rest of the week. Right, you might be getting a revelation about something right there, but it's a good thing for you to have your Bible. It's a good thing for you to have your own Bible. Right? I, know, I know you can walk in here and grab a Bible on the way in. But there's something about your own Bible where you know where Genesis 15, where it is on the page, and there's a little mark there that you made next to it two years ago, and you're revisiting that right now and going, why did I write that down? And God's reminding you right now why you wrote that down, and it's good. That's a good thing. Well, Genesis 15, we encounter a man named Abraham. Let's read in verse 4. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So here he gets to, to listen to the promise of God that has been made to him back in Genesis chapter 12. He gets to be reminded by God about this work that God is doing in his life. But there's a problem here because it's been 10 years since that promise from God came. And and Abram's not all right with that. And and you know what? I I think it's pleasing to God in a certain way when we're not all right with the idea that, God, we don't feel like you've answered what you promised. I think you can do that right. I think you can do it wrong. But I, I think there's a rightness about our saying, God, I, 
I've been believing you for this, and, and I'm not seeing it. And, and so that's the response I think you get from Abram here, verse 2. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, talk about reward. What, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, right? Some prominent servant probably in his house. Maybe somebody that, that he had in his house for many, many years. Maybe he was a child when he came in and has been a part of the household. But he's not his offspring, He's not the promised child, but, but he is, notice this interestingly, he is a way out. He is a viable means that Abraham's going to have somebody who's going to inherit. There's, there's some means for Abraham to get this promise accomplished. Verse 3, and Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Right? He's already settled in for that. Right, this is where this is going. It's been 10 years, God. What's normal at this point for 10 years is me to still be childless. Whatever it was that I was hoping for, it's not happening. And so uh, I, I guess in the natural, I'm going to end up settling for Eleazar. Well, I'm just kind of letting you know that's where this is going. I'm going to settle for Eleazar. And, you know, well, his wife's not going to be okay with that. And we keep reading in the story here and. Sarah's going to have a different idea, a different way of settling God's promise by raising up children through Hagar. Neither one of those is God's promise. Neither one of those is God's way. And, and, and it's a good thing to stand. And I, and I hope you're in a place as you begin January to think through your life and to think through what, what is it that God has in mind for you. Right? God finds Abram and makes him these rich promises all based in the mercy of God. God has found you, and he's made these rich promises to you, all based in the mercy found in Christ. And maybe you're surveying your life right now, and you're saying, you know what, God, I'm I'm not seeing some of this in my life. I'm not seeing these big, towering promises, the richness. of God, I'm, I'm not seeing that right now in my life. Okay, well, before you downgrade your Christianity and just accept that wherever you are is the way it's going to be and it's the way it's going to stay and the way it's going to never change from that, how about, how about a new normal? How about being able to say, you know what, God, I want to stand before you with a little bit different of an edge, a little different attitude. God, you made some promises, and I want to stand faithful looking for those promises this year to come to pass in my life. God, I want to risk the disappointment, right? Are you willing to risk disappointment? Listen, we are such comfort mongers as a people. You know, we, <clears throat> you know, we, we love the air conditioning, right? We want to make everything 72 degrees. And so sometimes living a life of faith, it's not 72 degrees. It is hot, humid, and sticky to stick your faith out there and say, I'm believing God to do this in my life this year. What if he doesn't? Well, stick your neck out anyway and let God be God at the end of the year. It's been 10 years for Abram. Now, it's going to be 25 before he actually sees this get fulfilled. God's going to be faithful. But along the way, are we going to believe God? Or are we just going to settle in for this nominal sort of Christianity? Right? There's another example here. <clears throat> Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17, we find this exchange taking place. The Valley of Elah. On one side are the Philistines. On the other side, the people of God. 
And there's a bit of a shouting match going forth between these two sides. There's been years and years of contention. This is a rivalry. I think uh, tonight, doesn't the Cowboys play the Giants tonight? Is that happening? Anybody in tune with that? Okay. This is, this is sort of the Cowboys and the Giants, right? I mean, this is, this is late in the season. But at this point, the Philistines are kind of been on a win streak. I mean, they've been, they've been pummeling Israel on a regular basis. And so there's a little bit of an intimidation factor here going on for the Israelites, and, and, and out comes Goliath. I mean, that's like their number one draft pick here this year is outrageous. This guy is off the charts. And when we already, the Philistines already are an intimidating bunch. But now here comes this dude, right? Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. All right, this guy is intimidating. He's about nine feet tall, right? Um, even in the in the even in the most minimizing of interpretations, this this guy's at least like six foot nine. In the, in, even if you go with the most minimum interpretation, which you know, if you're a if you're a Jewish basketball team, that's intimidating, right? <clears throat> he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. All right, this guy is wearing a Jewish man around his body. All right, that's about 150 pounds. So he's wearing wearing more than what most of them are going to bring to the party physically anyway. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. That's trash talking here. That's about as trashy as it gets, you know, at this point in the Bible anyway. He's trash talking. Give me a man and we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, now, there's probably multiple reasons, I think, for this season of dismay and fear for the people of God. And I don't think it's all just a matter of that dude's really big. He's wearing a lot of bling, and I don't think we can take him out. I don't, he's intimidating. I, I think it's more than that. You know, what you have in, in the Philistines are a people who have on, on a regular basis thwarted the armies of Israel. They've, they've come in at some point, they've stolen the ark of God. I mean, that's, you just, when you take the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence, the, the identifying point that says you of all the people on the face of the earth are a special people to me and I'm going to dwell in your presence. And the Philistines come in and say, oh yeah, we'll take that. And they take the ark out of the, I mean, that's intimidating. If you're the people of God, you're thinking, they just, deputized us. Who who are we now? And so the ark is gone. It's gone in the land of the Philistines. 
The Philistines on a regular basis are, are beating up on these guys. I think in some ways the Philistines are like a national rock star to the Israelites. They're intimidating. They're awesome. These guys can play some serious ball. And we've got we to go up against them. So they're the name for them amongst the Israelites is a tough name to overcome. As a matter of fact, if you just back up a couple of verses to chapter 14, verse 52, there's a little summary point here I think is very telling. It sort of characterizes the reign of Saul. Right? If you look at Saul as a king amongst the nation of Israel, Saul's a very natural-minded man. If he had a flaw, that was he thought like a, a natural-minded man. He didn't think like a spiritual man. When, when the people looked at Saul, naturally he looked like he should be king, right? He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was the biggest dude they could find. So it made sense for Saul to be king, and Saul thought naturally about strength and might and ability. Look at this one verse here characterizes him. There was hard fighting, verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. See, Saul was a very natural-minded man. So if you were big, he picked you. If you looked like you could do some damage, he wanted you on his team. Because naturally-minded, the bigger dude wins. So what happens when King Saul meets Goliath? Really, really, really bigger dude. Well, in his mind and the training that all the other people have had is we can't beat him. We can't go up against that guy and win. And so when he comes out and taunts them, he says, bring out your best man. Let's do it. They're all scared to death. Until this young boy named David shows up at the Valley of Elah one day, and he watches this exchange take place. And, you know, David, by any means, is, he's not some strapping, massive man. As a matter of fact, when natural-minded Saul tries to dress him in his armor to prepare him for battle, it doesn't fit him. It probably was cumbersome. He wasn't used to it, and it was probably too big. But yet David has something else in him. And that something else in him produces a different assessment of the situation. When he walks up and he watches, it's almost puzzling to him to watch the Philistines with whatever their record is, whatever their win-loss record is, with their intimidating first-round pick, shouting across the valley at the people of God. For him, he's standing and he looks at that and he goes, That's, this is abnormal. This is not normal. For this guy to be talking trash against us, do you, does he know who we are? Does, do you know who you're messing with? See, what was normal in the mind of David was we belong to the God of the universe. We're called by his name. I don't care what you're wearing. I don't care how big you are. What I know about God, you're almost non-existent. I don't even know how to take notice of you in comparison to who God is. Dudes. Normal for us is this guy's going down. But did you notice it wasn't normal for everybody else? It was very abnormal for them to be thinking, this is not a tough day. Matter of fact, this has been going on for days because these guys are paralyzed by the intimidation and the shouting. Okay, listen, 
there are issues in our lives as we go into this year that are very natural. And, and, and maybe we've become very natural-minded. Maybe we're all about our bank accounts and our time, our abilities, our persuasive personalities, what we can achieve for ourselves, whether I can get that job, get that raise, make these circumstances take place. And what's become normal for us is a life determined by natural resources. We're thinking this year we're quite capable of what we're naturally quite capable of. And yet, for a believer, is, is that normal? It seemed normal. Nobody, until David comes along, seems to be at all put out by everybody's afraid. You're afraid? <sighs> Me too. What do you think? I have no idea, man. I'm scared to death. And, you know, and the more you hear that, the more normal it feels. It's like a bad covenant group meeting, isn't it? <laughs> right? The, the leader throws out a question. It, the meeting then gets hijacked by somebody else who takes it in that direction with their terrifying explanation of this or that going on in their life. And, and, and that experience is common to half the group. And so before you know it, you got this round of amens going on. And so one person after another is reinforcing that this is bad and it has no hope and, and that's normal. Yeah, me last year. You too, me last month. Yeah, my situation turned into this. And next thing you know, everybody's sort of reinforced that this is, this is normal. And, and listen, you know, at that moment there needs to be a David who stands in the midst of that and says, normal compared to what? What, what really is normal, right? You know, for you to answer the question, what's normal? Normal needs a reference point, right? Let's, let's play with reference point for a minute here. I mean, if I were to ask you, and nobody answered this out loud, is, are you normal, right? <laughs> is, better question. Is your family normal? <laughs> uh, some of you should be laughing. Um, is the church normal? Do you go to a normal church? How do you answer the question about what's normal? Right? Or here's a, you know, just definition for normal, working definition. Normal means usual. Conforming to the usual standard, type, or custom. Normal can have to do with what's become common. What's the trend? What's the average experience of people that we get around. That can, that can determine normal for us. Listen, everybody, every, you know, we don't mind being exceptional, but at least at bare minimum on a daily basis, we want to be normal. We don't want to wake up every day going, I'm weird. You know, I'm, I'm abnormal. Another day where I know I'm at, we want to be normal in some ways. All right, well, be very careful, though. What really is normal? And what's your frame of reference when you say you're normal? What are you, what are you comparing yourself to? All right, a couple of interesting thoughts here. Is your work pattern normal? Right, you're an American. You, you go to work every day. Is your work pattern normal? It's what you do and you call work normal. Look, look at this thought. Tony Reinke in his book Lit says, In 1964, Robert Lee calculated the leisure time available to Americans 
modern versus the, the average worker in the mid-1800s. That was his comparison pool. It is a striking fact to note that the working man of a century ago spent some 70 hours per week on the job and lived about 40 years. Today, he spends about 40 hours per week at work and can expect to live about 70 years. Right? I mean, I saw a USA Today poll uh, several months ago about the average amount of time that people spend working in jobs. And, and most of them didn't even get to 40 hours. You know, so it's a very different work world. As a matter of fact, Robert Wapples did this report for Wake Forest University. He said in 1880, a typical male household, the head of the household, had very little leisure time, about 1.8 hours per day over the course of a year. However, as Fogel's 2000 estimates show, between 1880 and 1995, the amount of work per day fell nearly in half, allowing leisure time to more than triple. Right? How, now, how many of you guys right now feel like, I just don't have enough time off? Right? My amount of time off from work is just, it's just not normal. Uh, compared to what? Right? If you compare the working day, and again, you know, normal needs a reference point. If you grew up in an agricultural economy, which is what was happening in the 1800s, the work day looked very different than an industrialized economy, which is what it became in the next century, and an urban economy, which is what we live in. It's very different. Lifestyles are very different. Right? You, and, you know, you got to be careful when you read biographical stories that you don't glamorize stuff that was quite normal for them, you know, rural pace of life and activity. Well, you know, today, unlike, you know, back in the 1880s where most people lived in a rural environment, today... Uh, most people live in a suburban environment, right? More people live in the suburbs today than live in rural environments and urban environments combined. So what's normal in the suburbs? Right? Different lifestyle, different time patterns, right? So, you know, when you play with normal, be careful what you reference. What about your church attendance? Since I am a pastor, I'm going to play in this one a little bit longer than your work world. Look at this. In, two, in a 2006 online Harris poll of over 2,000 U.S. adults from 18 and older, found that only 20, 26% of those surveyed attended religious services every week or more often. 9% went once or twice a month. A Gallup International poll found that 15% of French citizens, 10% of U.K. citizens, and 7.5% of Australians regularly attend church. Now, before you fall in love with the idea that, wow, the Americans are at least, or at least we're 26%, most people terribly disputed those numbers <laughs> and said, no, they're very inaccurate because they're just polls of people's opinions about themselves and they're not actual facts of whether or not their butt was in church that week. <laughs> and so <laughs> once they did that, they started feeling like, no, the figure's more like 17% in America. But even if we went with 26%, right? Now, Look at this, this thought here. I think it may be up on the slide here from Ra the Rapid City Journal, right? Rapid City. It's kind of a lovely little community, right? Rapid City. Listen to this. This is from an article, Trends in Church Attendance Spell Trouble for Faiths. When Sonny Ironhorse was growing up, she went to church almost every Sunday with her family. Now, a 23-year-old parent herself, Ironhorse admits that she rarely attends church on Sundays. It's not always about going to church, she said. I, I still consider myself a spiritual person. I still believe in a higher power. Listen, 
Iron Horse said she considers herself a non-denominational Pentecostal. All right, so this is, this is not a stranger to the church world here. She said her lack of attending church is partially because she, she just hasn't found the right church in Rapid City since she moved there from Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, about a year and a half ago. All right, listen, listen. There, there is this disorder, this disease called right church syndrome that people kind of bump in and out of churches shopping for the right church. Listen, that, that is such an American, can I say, vomitous practice. Because uh, here, here's the humble reality. The, the church that you showed up in that morning became less right the moment you arrived. <laughs> right? That's what you and I are bringing to the party. Right? Whatever was going on in that church before you and I decided to visit and show up just got more complicated and pulled down a little bit further. <laughs> so there you're not going to find the right church. You're going to find churches that got a lot of wrong going on in them. And you just need to be ready for that. Because quite honestly, God is going to use the wrong stuff about that church as much as he's going to use the right stuff about it. That doesn't mean you just don't have any parameters into which you choose. But I'm talking to the people who can't seem to ever find the right church. They're a few months in this one, a few months in that one, a year or two in this one, but they got one foot in even while they're there for a year or two, and then they're on their way to somewhere else, and they just can't seem to find a shoe that fits exactly right. You're not going to find that shoe. God hasn't designed a shoe to fit that way. He's designed a church to have things that you can see clearly and things that are going to not be on your favorite list. And so that's normal. Uh, if you're ever going to be involved in the church, be prepared for that. She says, with a new baby keeping her up at night, she admits one of the biggest obstacles for her is that most church services are Sunday mornings. I'm just not a morning person, she says. Right, I know this and to, some, to some of you found, sounds comical, but to some of you it's, it sounds normal. Right? It sounds like what you hear people saying. It sounds maybe like something even you've said, Right? But raising her child with religious views is important to her, she said. Now that I have a baby, I will probably start looking again. Like Iron Horse, most young adults today don't pray, don't worship, and don't read the Bible. A major study by a Christian research firm shows. All right, most, all right, so if that's true, most don't do that, then what's common? Well, what's common is for you to be rubbing elbows with people who don't pray, don't read the Bible, and are not committed to a local fellowship. That's common, and common is the link to normal. So next thing, you can start feeling like it's normal, right? And then we get in, in covenant group, and like wildfire, disease spreads, and we start saying at the beginning of the year, and perhaps this is what this beginning of the year covenant group meeting will sound like. So what kind of resolutions do you got going on? Well, I'm resolving this year that I'm going to have a prayer life. You know, I had no prayer life in 2011. I, I can't even tell you the last time I prayed. Pick my Bible up. <laughs> ah, August? Ah, I don't, you too? Yeah, the next thing, here it goes. Boom, boom, boom. A bunch of people who have never read their Bible in the last several weeks. And that's common, so we start feeling like my experience is normal. 
And so we're not moved by that to read our Bibles, pick it up. Right? Common can begin to teach us what normal is. Right? We'll look a little further here. If the trends continue, the millennial generation will see churches closing as rapidly as GM dealerships, says Tom Rainer, president of Lifeway Christian Resources. It surveyed 1,200 members of the 18 to 29-year-old millennial generation and found 72% say they're really more spiritual than religious, whatever the heck that means. 65% rarely or never attend worship services. Among the 65% who call themselves Christians, many are either mushy Christians or Christians in name only, Rainer said. Most are just indifferent. The more precisely you try to measure their Christianity, the fewer you find committed to the faith and and able to demonstrate in their lives. Listen to this young lady. Shannon Hall, 27 of Rapid City, said that she also grew up going to church every Sunday morning with her family. Sundays were days of church, a nice lunch, and family activities at her home. The days of relaxing Sundays are long gone, she said. There are so many different things that are going on that I have a hard time fitting in church. All right, that's, that's common. I, I hear that. You hear that. Right? Is it normal? Well, it's common. Our weekly schedule is just packed. Sometimes I'm grocery shopping at 10 at night just to squeeze in time, Hall said. When Sunday rolls around, if we're not off at a function, then we're recuperating from Saturday's activities. We've got things that have, got, that have to get done at the house, and sometimes Sunday seems like the only time to do them. All right, does this sound uncommon to you or common to you? Growingly common to you. i got to say this. Strange to people who are probably 50 and older. Right, when I, Gina was raised uh, a good part of her life by her grandmother. And, you know, her grandmother comes from the generation that, you know, if the church doors were opened, you were there. There was just no such thing as you doing anything else. But if the church was meeting, you were there. And so it's kind of funny, you know, when I think about her and just her simple philosophy of life. But that is not the philosophy of a younger generation. That's not how folks think about the church. And, and it came out in this article. Reverend Ted Huffman of the First Congregational United Church of Christ said, the patterns in church attendance have definitely shifted. Those over 60 think being active means attending church every Sunday. Those in their 20s think going once a month is attending regularly. And so be careful, you know, is your church attendance normal? How do you answer that? Right, now here's, here's my experience, and I find this in this article by Lovett Weems from the Christian Century. He talked about worship attenders, they attend less frequently. They're, they're involved in a church, but how often you're going to see them has become much less predictable. He says, in addition to tracking weekly attendance numbers, some churches are tracking who actually worships during a month. Many pastors sense that the same individuals are worshiping throughout the year, but that they worship less often. Right? They're part of your church but they're a little unpredictable as to what weeks they'll be there and which ones they won't. While the percentage of people who report attending church more than once a week has stayed steady over the years, the percentage saying they attend once a week has steadily gone down. 
Some pastors have observed that many members of their congregation identify themselves as regular churchgoers, even though they may attend only twice a month or less. In early times, being a regular churchgoer meant coming to worship almost every Sunday. All right, so you are, you are watching a transition take place in the world in which we live, in the place in which the church functions. This, this is happening, right? God, I'm reading a couple different books that are exploring some of these thoughts. One guy who's got a solid church happening, things are going on there. He, he basically is saying, this is the trend. I don't like it, but it is what it is. Uh, all right, I'm with you in that. But at the same time, you know, if, if I'm David walking up to the valley of church attendance, I don't, I don't just want to say it is what it is. Right? I, I want at some point as, as God's people to stand and say, this is not normal. Let's usher in normal. Hey, give me that sling and those stones right there. Let me show you what normal is. Right? Some people of God need to stand and rethink normal. All right, if you explore the rest of your life, you, you, you'd find questions about what's, what's normal patterns today. But let's be careful about what you accept. Right, do you know that it's common that over 35% of children born today are born outside of marriage? 35%. More than that, actually. That's a, the low end. Wow. Well, when you get 35% of anything, is it common? <laughs> yeah. One in three people? That's common. Is it normal? Listen, sexuality is such a common thing. Um, nobody's shocked anymore. Right? Nobody's shocked when there's a suspicion that that couple, they're, they're not married, but they're living together. Or that couple... Uh, everybody knows they've been going together for a long time and they're sexually involved with each other. You know, this isn't like, you know, some woman gets out of her Model T Ford and won't make eye contact with you because that's not normal, right? And she kind of shuns that thought that mm, you two been doing the dirty and she's not even going to talk to you. Today, everybody knows they're doing it. I mean, it's just, hey, come on. Everybody knows they're doing it. You know, it's just facts of life, right? Come on, grow up. Don't be such a prude. Well, that's kind of the way the culture is teaching us to handle those things. Listen, before we as a church start saying that's normal, we're we going to raise a generation that has to feel like they're abnormal because that's not what they're pursuing. Listen, be careful what we call normal as the people of God. Right? It wasn't, wasn't common or normal just a number of years ago. To see the amount of time that we spend with gadgets and TV and all those, that's changed, right? Our life patterns have changed. So, so here's, here's my, my big deal for this morning. If we're going to answer the question of are you normal, then, then we need a reference point. We need to determine as the people of God, what are we going to call our reference point? Right? If I were to say, hey, are you, are you a normal disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you a normal disciple? Immediately, how, how can you tell if you're normal? How would you answer that question? Would you compare yourself with what? Modern Christians that you know of? Practices that you've observed in people's lives? Right? One of the new normal things that we're just going to seek God for this year 
is, is the area of being charismatic. Right? If I were to ask you, are you a normal charismatic? How would you answer that? Because, you know, I find today, as a matter of fact, I played with these two words and decided not to spend time on them. But, you know, be careful, normal and nominal. Normal and nominal, right? The word nominal, uh, it sounds like normal, but it, it has to do with being something in name only. There's a lot about Christianity that normal, normal today Christianity has become nominal Christianity. It associates with ideas about Christianity. It borrows language, but it's, it's not really Christianity. Are you a normal charismatic? Well, okay, well, if, if being charismatic means I believe the Bible teaches on spiritual gifts, uh, I believe that those gifts continue, but I can't really tell you that I experience them. That's normal for a lot of people. But in the Bible, was that normal for the people of God in the Bible? I mean, right? Some of us need a new normal. We need not just have great vocabulary about the Christian life, but we need to have the experiences that go with these great rich words. Are you, are you a normal church member? Is your practice of serving the church, is that normal? Is your tithing, is that normal? Is your witness of the work of Christ on the cross in this world, is that normal? Are these are good questions. Are, are, you a, are you a normal teenager? What, what does that mean? That's a scary question, isn't it? Are you a normal single person? Are you a normal husband and wife? Right? I, I want a new normal. I don't want to settle for what's always been, what's become common, what's trendy, neither what's the trends that are being created by the church world around me even, but the trends that I create, what's normal for me. I, I don't want that to define what I call normal. I want another reference point. I want to be able to refer to something that guides me into what's normal. So wh where do we look for that? Well, that's, that's where the Bible's got to come in, right? The Bible has to help us understand what's normal for all these categories. That needs to be the place where I look at that and I say, that, that's what normal is. This is, this is common, but that, it's not necessarily normal according to Scripture. Right, now here's the, here's the challenge of whether the Bible is defining normalcy for us. Barbara Miller wrote an article called Bible Literacy, Crisis in America. Interesting, she said this, Bible illiteracy is not just confined to the unchurched secular population of America. According to Gary Berg, he's a professor of New Testament studies at Wheaton College, there's a crisis of basic Bible knowledge in the church also, especially among youth. In an article published in Christianity Today in 1999, Berg wrote about surveys which were administered by Wheaton College to incoming freshmen to assess their knowledge of the Bible. These students who represent every Protestant denomination in America and are asked basic Bible questions. Here's some of the questions, and here's some of the results. He says, one-third of the students tested could not put in the following in sequential order, right? You see how you do in your own mind. Uh, Abraham, the Old Testament prophets, the death of Christ, and Pentecost. 
One-third couldn't put that in sequential order. Half could not sequence the following. Moses in Egypt, Isaac's birth, Saul's death, and Judah's exile. One-third could not identify Matthew as an apostle from a list of New Testament names. One-third could not identify the book of Acts as a location of Paul's missionary travels. Half did not know that the Christmas story was in Matthew. Half did not know that the Passover story was in Exodus. He decided to give the same test to high school seniors just to see how they did. Here's what the results. 80% could not place Moses, Adam, David, Solomon, Abraham in chronological order. 80%. Only 20% knew that Paul's travels were recorded in the book of Acts. Only 33% could locate the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. 80% could not locate the Lord's Prayer. And this is my favorite one. She says, in a, re- in a report on America's religious illiteracy, USA Today reported that 50% of high school seniors think that Sodom and Gomorrah were married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be an interesting couple, huh? Ooh. George Barna says, few believers read the scriptures regularly. In fact, only 54% of Protestant adults read the Bible each week. It's rare even for those who read the Bible to conduct a thorough reading. One study found that 65% of adults who identify themselves as Bible readers have never read the entire New Testament. What accounts for this low rate of Bible readership? In a survey of more than 500 pastors, 47% cited lack of time as the main reason more Christians don't read the Bible. Lack of time? Didn't we just find out that our work days have been cut in half and we have more leisure time now than the guy who lived in 1880? Lack of time? For real? Well, yeah. But the question is, I guess, what are we doing with the time that we do have? Right Now, here's, here's the challenge I want to set before us. Uh, we, as a church, we can't even have a conversation about normal Christianity if we're not familiar with what the Bible says is normal. So, you know, a lot of times when we stand in a pulpit and preach, uh, try to be as available to different levels of understanding as possible. It's a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, if you're a Christian, there needs to be some basic foundational work that's going on as you are reading the Bible and getting up to speed in truth so that that Bible is determining for you we say something, what does it mean? I say normal, where do you go? Common or to the Bible to find out what's normal here? And this, this is where I want to put a huge amount of emphasis for us on this thing that we're calling the 30-30 plan here in January. Right? 30 days, 30 minutes a day. Uh, and if you've read this at all, you'll, you'll know what we have found and what churches are finding and what is common in Christianity today is that people are not spending significant amounts of time interacting with the God of the universe through the primary means that God has made available to us. That is the word of God led to us by the spirit. That's not happening in significant ways. And it it is going to have and it is having a significant impact on what the church will ever do 
what it will ever accomplish, whether it will simply stand on the other side of the valley and be intimidated by the Philistines and live under the oppression of ideas that the Philistines have. Learn how, remember the Philistines, the Philistines taught the people of God how to move the ark. Do you remember this? Right, God had given, God, the voice of God had spoken and had given them and written down for them careful instruction that when you move the ark, here's who can touch it and here's how you move it. God said that years and years before. They could read that in the word of God. Along come the Philistines, you know, they're cool. They're the rock stars of nations around us. And they've got stuff like, they've got a king. Hey, why don't we have a king? they got a king. Can we have a king? And then they steal the ark, and so the Israelites got to go back and pick the thing up. When they get over to the Philistines, do they read God's word and pick up God's word and say, here's how you carry the ark and here's who can touch the ark? No, no, no. They move it like the Philistines moved it. They pick it up and put it on a cart, which they were never supposed to do, and it gets pulled by oxen, which it was never supposed to do either. And sure enough, as it moves along, it begins to topple over. Remember, this is coming later in 2 Samuel. It topples over, and the guy sticks his hand out just to keep it from falling. He was well intended, and God zaps him dead right there. And everybody freaks out. What just happened? We're, we're bringing the ark of God back to the people of God. And this, this guy was just trying to help out. Here's what just happened. You stop paying attention to the word of God. That's what just happened. And now you, you can't explain that event. Even King David's pulling his hair out wondering, oh, what, what just went wrong? Well, what went wrong was you, you didn't pay attention to the word of God. God had said, this is how you do this. Listen, if you and I are going to be the people of God, there is no alternative to the word of God in our lives. There's no alternative. There's, there's, no, there's no radio program that can take its place. There's nothing you can download on the Internet. There's no number of services that you can attend that can take its place. You have to let the word of God invade your life. You have to create time for that. You have to. Listen, none of us are worried that you're going to go home this week and you're just not going to have time to eat all week long. Some of you are going to come back here so emaciated, we're going to carry you in on carts, prop you up in a chair so you can go back home to your starvation plan. No. You're going to eat quite well, aren't you? You're going to eat in just a few minutes, right? (laughs) You're hoping. You're trusting. Um, Listen, the Word of God is it's food for your soul. It's the thing that makes you healthy on the inside. If you were some emaciated, poorly physically health individual and you tried to just do daily stuff, you'd have a very hard time doing it. Some of it would become even dangerous for you to even try to do and you'd lack the energy to do it. And, well, what happens when your soul gets in that kind of condition? And yet every morning you've got to get up, you've got you to care for people, you've got to be in a relationship, you've got to go to work, You've got to manage many demands on your life. What happens when your soul is just not healthy? Boy, how difficult life becomes. How discouraging life becomes. I remember hearing Pete say this over and over again. You know, Pete lost so much weight over the last couple of years. Uh, He lost like a whole human being. And 
just how that affected his energy levels and just daily functions. If you talk to him, you'll know, you'll hear him say that, just how hard he didn't realize because it was normal. He didn't realize how hard life was in that condition until he got a new normal. And he lost all that weight, and next thing you know, he realized, man, what a difference it makes physically to my energy, to my outlook, to the way I react to people, to how I relate to my wife. All right, if that's true physically, can I tell you it's 10,000 times more true spiritually for you. If you're spiritually out of shape, starving to death, it's affecting your whole world. All right, so what if... What if we just said, okay, January. I'm not asking you to change your whole life for the rest of your life. But can you just do January? Can you just say, I, I, can, I can create 30 minutes a day for the month of January. I can, I can do that. I don't know if I can do that. Well, I can try and do it. I, I can do that. There's 30 minutes available for 30 days. I think it will produce a radical impact on lives. For many of us, we've just gotten out of the practice of regular interaction with God, letting him speak to us through his word, being available to him. And the, Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, I beg you, I beseech you, brothers, please, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship, just part of being a spiritual person. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Listen, right now, what are you doing to renew your mind? Because if you're not doing enough, what is common that you are exposed to will become what's normal to you. You will think like the world. You will adopt those ideas. You will not be shocked by things that you should be shocked by. You will not be drawn and impressed by things you should be impressed by. Right? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is God, what is good and acceptable and perfect and normal. How are you going to find out what's normal for your life? as a child of God, as a member of a church, as a husband or a wife, as a teenager, how are you going to find out what's normal? Well, you already know what's common. You get that by the air you breathe and the people you're around. What's normal is what God will reveal to you by his word. Ed Stetzer says, for Christians as a whole, we have research that shows that the correlation between spiritual maturity and reading the Bible. We found that reading the Bible was the best predictor of spiritual maturity. In other words, if you were in the Bible, you were growing spiritually. I, you know, like, honestly, I, I don't know if I've met anybody who is, who is you know, in this d kind of funky land, uh, their heart's away from God, they're just wandering through their Christian life, and they turn around and tell me, but I'm in the Word every day. That guy doesn't exist. You know who exists? The guy who's wandering in disaffection. That guy always, always explains how he's not in the Word. Right, can we just see an obvious connection here? Right, the words it's the bread of life. It's your spiritual sustenance. It's got to be part of how you live. Right now, immediately, and I put both of these objections in your outline so you didn't have to go ahead and think them out loud with me. But I'm not much of a reader. <laughs> 
or I just don't get that much out of reading, right? right. One of the smartest dudes, smartest pastors I know is John Piper. Listen to this thought. This, is, this, this puts all of us on equal ground right here. He says, what I have learned from about 20 years of serious reading is this. It is sentences that change my life, not books. What changes my life is some new glimpse of truth, some powerful challenge, some resolution to a long-standing dilemma, and these usually come concentrated in a sentence or two. I do not remember 99% of what I read. <laughs> oh, John, that doesn't just encourage me. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's a number available to me after 99%, is there? But if the 1% of each book or article I do remember is a life-changing insight, then I don't begrudge the 99%. And that life-changing insight usually comes in a moment, a moment whose value is all out of proportion to its little size. That's why I call it an immeasurable moment. Right, can I tell you, you can, you, can pick, you can pick up the Bible and you can be reading much of it and you can be going, ah, I'm just, not, I'm just not getting something, but in a moment, God zeroes you in on a passage, and that thing comes 3D off the page, screaming into your soul about who you are and who God is in that moment, and your life is changed. Does that mean you could do an expository message out of the other two chapters that you just read previously to that? Probably not. And you might not even remember a bunch of what you read, but it served what God wanted to do. He wanted to get your attention in this area and minister that to you. And that sustained you. That changed your life. Listen, if 99% if of what Piper's reading, he's not remembering, and he's reading good stuff, then I, I can wonder how much of this message you're going to walk away with today. All right? It's just reality. I'm not writing any cool books. Piper's not reading anything. He doesn't even listen to my messages, I'm pretty sure. So I don't know what percent he'd walk away with anything from what I had to say. But, you know, here's the reality. And this is, this is what we know when we walk into this pulpit. Uh, the reality is no one's walking out of here with an hour's worth of information. You're walking out of here with a piece. One little piece that made sense to you, that met you where you are at this season of your life, with all that's going on in your life, one passage, one story, one example that stood out from the rest, and you can't even remember the rest of the message. But that one thing God's going to use to turn your world upside down. See, that's the power of receiving from the Spirit through the vehicle of teaching. And that's what God does in the Word of God. He teaches us and He revolutionizes our life. But if you don't have 30 minutes here and 30 minutes there... You don't have that kind of encounter with God going on. And you're just running on last year's fumes. And whenever that did happen for you, that can't, that can't be the way we are. Listen, if we're going to be a new normal this year, it's got to be because the word of God has a bigger place in our lives. All right. So as Matt comes up here, let me just highlight something for you. I think it's in the bottom of your outline there, something I want you to pay attention for, and something I want you to, at this point in the service to begin to, to, to listen for. It's that last little box there. It's called covenant group preparation. All right, so I don't want to see anybody leaving their notes in this auditorium anymore, okay? So in 2012, don't leave your notes here. Your notes are for you. 
Your notes are for that one thing that God communicated to you today. To make sure you hold on to it, review it, make space in your life to receive further from God. You're going to sit in your covenant group meeting. What's your takeaway today? Right? right now, what is it that God's speaking to you about today? That don't just write it out. Start writing it out right now. Don't, don't wait until you show up in the meeting and you're trying to remember. Uh, wait, was I in church on Sunday? Uh, who preached? Uh, what was that about again? No, that was three weeks ago. Uh, what was the question again? You know, show up with this box filled in where you've done the homework to say, okay, God, what are you showing me? What's the main takeaway here? And I want to be able to explain that. I want to be able to take what God has done in me and explain it to somebody else. Listen, if you can't do that, you're not a normal Christian. You're not a disciple. A disciple doesn't just suck in and suck in and suck in and suck in. A disciple ministers to others. So at some point, you've got to be able to take what God's doing in you and turn it into a story that you can tell others. Whether it's to build up the body of Christ or to tell somebody who doesn't know Christ about Christ. You've got to do that. So do a little homework. Do a little research. Be prepared. How will you explain what you experience from God to your group? What Bible passage will you reference? What did God make real to you? Maybe it was in the outline. Maybe it wasn't. Was there a part of a quote that that just rung your bell? Yeah, the way that guy said that, that helped me to see that. All right, write that down. Be able to explain what God's doing. Listen, that's normal. You sit in a covenant group meeting week after week after week with a bunch of people that one after another, somebody tells a story of I encountered God this way. I open up God's word and I experience God this way. Can I, can I tell you that's happening? And I'm trying to figure out a way to put that into these services. I, I've had couples tell me since we started this series on the spirit and even before then, they had very little prayer life, and then they began to pray together. God just began to move them, and next thing you know, they were, they were praying for half an hour together. And, and then half an hour turned into a couple hours. It said, Keith, on a regular basis, my husband and I will be together, and it will be a couple hours went by, and we're just praying. And it's like, that was two hours. How did that happen? I had a guy walk up to me after the service a few weeks ago, say, I was, I was just on my own praying. His prayer location sounded like my prayer location for years. I was just I was in the bathroom by myself praying, and just the Spirit of God just fell on me. And this joy entered into my soul. And, and man, next thing you know, I just had this joy all over me. He said, I still got it all over me. This was days later. Right? There are, when you sit in a meeting and people can tell you, this is what I'm experiencing. This is common. This is common. This is common. You'll begin to have a different definition for normal. Listen, our covenant group setting is a tremendous setting for a new normal. You sit with God. You get in the word of God. Listen, we've got some helps for you guys. I want to promote these things to you. Nobody needs help. If you've got bare minimum going on, pick the Bible up and start reading it. All right, so if you don't have a plan, don't be paralyzed by that. Pick the Bible up and start reading this week. Just say, okay, I've got 30 minutes. I want to commit a portion of that to praying. I want to reflect. I want to think. I want to interact with God. And, I, and I'd like to pray about the Spirit's leading me during that time. All right, so maybe don't spend all 30 minutes praying right up to the 30-minute mark. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Now, if you want some help in doing that, right, there are resources available to you guys. Uh, time with God, outstanding, helpful resource. Right, this is a 28-day little take you through 
bring into the word of God, put a passage before you, ask some good questions about that passage, give you some further reading to do if you'd like to do that. Very helpful. Uh, these are all in the bookstore. If you like this after trying it or you've tried it before, this is called Explore. It's, it's this on a 90-day basis. So the next three months of what you would do every day to get your time with God. It's right here. Yeah, listen, it's paralyzing when you, when you get your time and you got nothing to do and you don't know where to go and you're just staring and you're like, okay, I'm, gonna just, I'm open to the Bible. What do I do? Okay, hey, even if they're saying, well, this is not the ideal plan for me. Listen, a, a plan is better than no plan. Right? This will tell you every day, read this. And it will help you every day. So you can pick that up. If you're a teenager, there's a teenage version of this called Engage. So if you have teenagers in your house and you want to buy that for them, it's 90 days again. 90 days from now, you get another one. And uh, great articles in here as well. If you have little ones, you want to try and begin to help them spend time. This is called Beginning with God. All these are solid, uh, gospel-centered publications that we highly recommend how they handle doctrine and truth. Um, but this morning, let's, let's believe God for a new normal. All right, can I do this to you guys? Here's the, the best foot to your faith I can give you. I want to I know how many of us, right, can, as a pastor, I don't think that's wrong for me to know. As a matter of fact, I think it's very important f- for us as, to know as pastors. Because quite honestly, if we walk in here and we find out that there's 10% of the church is spending any kind of time in the word of God, that tells us a lot about where we can and cannot go as a church. Tells us a whole lot about whether we're preaching stuff that's so high up in the stars that the average person ain't never going there. They're never going to do that. They're never going to interact that way. They're never going to put that off and put that on and begin to minister that way because they don't have enough of the word of God affecting them. Um, So how about this? Right now, if you've not filled out one of these cards and you're saying, okay, I'm going for it. I'm going I'm to sign on. I'm going to spend the next 30 days with 30 minutes a day. I'm thinking right now where I can put that 30 minutes, where that's going to fit, what days it will work for me to do it this way, what days it will work for me to do it that way. But, yeah, I can, I can carve out 30 minutes. I'm going to eat a 30-minute meal at some point. I can sit down during that meal and I can, I can get 30 minutes of interacting with God. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just put your name on here and your email address. And, and we want to be able to be cheerleaders to you, digital electronic cheerleaders as you pursue God and pray for you and believe God to make a huge impact in your life. Right? It is normal for a church to be in the word of God on a regular basis. Anything less than that is abnormal. Let's stand up together. Lord, I thank you for a new year. Well, thank you for the thought that things can be new in our lives. Lord, that is such a rescuing feeling that, Lord, no matter what the past has been, no matter what last year held, no matter how intimidating, no matter how impossible the Goliaths in my life have looked, Lord, I I thank you for a new day, a new opportunity. Lord, I thank you that we know that your mercies are new every morning. They're not just new on January the 1st. So, Lord, thank you that mercy will greet us on a daily basis. So what if I didn't read yesterday? Your mercies are new every morning. What if I didn't read the whole week? Your mercies are new 
every morning available to us is the empowerment of God by his grace to be obedient, to walk. So, Father, would you, would you create a new normal in our midst? God, I pray 2012 to be a new normal for us as a church in so many categories. But, God, it's got to start where we're starting today. We need a new normal means of interacting with your word. It needs to influence us. It needs to feed our souls. God, do a work in us. Or may it be that at the end of this 30-day period, Lord, you have started something that is revolutionary in this church. Lord, the days of commonality, of hearing that we're not in your word, are over. We are a people living connected to your word, influenced and affected by your word. Father, I want to pray for some that are here this morning, just for you to, to stir in them whatever it was that David had in, their, in his life. Lord, David saw something about you. that gave him a different normal than everyone around him had. He did not look at the natural and become overwhelmed by it. He saw you before he saw natural circumstances. Lord, I pray for a bunch of Davids in this room who are standing across the valley from fear and intimidation and something in their life is broken. Or maybe there's some dads here this morning who are needing a new David normal. Maybe there's some husbands and wives here who have been in a season for way too long and what's normal for them lacks intimacy, it lacks affection, it lacks time for one another, it lacks encouragement from one another. Lord, that's been what's common, that's become what's normal. Oh God, for a new normal this morning. Lord, let one of those husband or wife, Lord, let them step before the valley of Elah with a sense of who God is. Things are going to be different. I believe God. Give me those stones. I'm not afraid. We'll not give in. Lord, move us from where we are. Lord, whatever 2011 was for many of us in a bunch of categories, Lord, there's a new opportunity before us. God, stand before us with power and glory and abilities and convince our souls of who you are. God, let us believe big. Lord, let us not create natural solutions. We don't want Eleazar's and we don't want Hagar. Lord, we want your promises in our lives. Lord, we don't want to be common charismatics. We want to be normal charismatics this year. We don't want to be common teenagers. We want to be normal, biblical teenagers blow the minds of this world. God, thank you for a new day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you as we've been studying that you have empowered us by the Spirit so we have hope to believe that the sufficiency for these things is not of ourselves, but it is from you. That's who's sufficient for these things. A God who is faithful, who's in our midst. Lord, let 2012 bring a new normal in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you for being here.
Hey guys, can we, if don't forget your cards, okay, either right now turn them in or just leave them in the chairs and we'll, we'll scoop them up. But please turn them in, don't forget that.